0: We read the Word of God this morning, first in Genesis 17, and then we will turn and read a brief passage in Acts chapter 2. And these two passages will demonstrate that the truth that will be preached this morning was not only an Old Testament truth, but also a New Testament truth, the truth concerning God's covenant with believers and their children. So let's begin by reading Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee. And thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house, or bought with money, of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with money, thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant." Now let's turn to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 2, to the day of Pentecost, the sermon of the Apostle Peter in Jerusalem, which, in which he said the following words toward the end of his sermon, Acts 2, verses 37 to 39. Now, when they heard this, that is, when they heard the message of Christ crucified, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you, And to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. We read the scriptures that far this morning. We consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 27. we already considered the meaning of holy baptism a few weeks ago in Lord's Day 26 now we conclude the section on baptism in Lord's Day 27 is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself not at all for the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin why then doth the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins God speaks thus not without great cause, to wit, not only thereby to teach us, that as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by this divine pledge and sign, he may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church, and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, When Christian fathers and mothers bring children into this world, they ought to bring their children to be baptized. And they ought also to know why they do that. Of course, there are many parents all around us, here in our town, here in our community, that bring children into this world, but they do not bring them to be baptized. And the reason is because they are unbelievers. They are not Christians. There are many others who live in our community who bring children into this world, and they do bring them to be baptized. They bring them up to the priest because they believe that the priest has holy water, some kind of special water that is able to wash away sin itself. The actual water, they believe, has the power to wash away the original sin of their little child, so they bring their child for baptism for that reason, or because their parents are devout Catholics, and in order to keep their parents happy, they bring their children for baptism. There are other Christian parents who live around us, who bring children into this world, even right down the road from here. But they don't bring their children for baptism either. But the reason they don't bring their children for baptism is not that they're unbelievers, but that they don't think that it is right. They don't think that it is biblical to bring their children to be baptized. But they believe that they have to wait until their children grow up and accept Jesus into their life. And only then can they baptize their children. Many of us are parents, most of us, and we have brought children into this world as well. And as Reformed Christians, we have taken our little children, when they were very little infants, to the church to be baptized. Some of us did that long ago. Some of us have done that very recently. Some of us will do that again, Lord willing. Some recently, some perhaps later. But do we understand why we bring our little babies to the church to be baptized? Do we understand the meaning of this precious heritage of the Reformed churches that goes all the way back to the Reformation and this precious Christian heritage which goes all the way back to the ancient church and indeed to the apostles themselves? Do we understand the meaning of and the basis of infant baptism, also known as pedobaptism. Do we understand the firm scriptural basis for this precious practice? And does it really matter? Does it matter, really, after all, if we bring our children for baptism or if we bring them for dedication? There are many Reformed churches today who are giving up infant baptism in favor of infant dedication. Instead of applying the sacrament of the washing away of sins to their children, they simply bring their children to the church and dedicate them. Meaning, I suppose, that they dedicate their children to God in the hopes that someday they will become Christians and will be able to be baptized. Does it make a difference if we baptize our infants or if we wait till they are making confession of faith before they get baptized? Does it matter? In other words, if we are Reformed, or Baptist, or even Catholic, does it make a difference what church we are a member of? It does make a difference. It does matter. It's a very important subject, and we need to understand why it is that we bring our infants for baptism. So I call your attention this morning to the doctrine of infant baptism. Notice first of all the biblical basis of it, secondly the rich sacrament, and finally the practical implications. The question that the catechism asks us in this Lord's Day is, are infants to be baptized? That's a question that was asked hundreds of years ago to Reformed believers, reformed catechumens. And it's a question that is still asked to us today. It's a question that is asked to you and to me today. And the answer that the catechism gives us is yes. They are to be baptized. And then the catechism goes on to give the explanation for that. But the Baptists are going to immediately ask us, how can that be? How can you say that? How can you answer that question with a yes? How can you bring your little children your infant children to the church to be baptized when the Lord Jesus Christ commanded in the institution of baptism that the Apostles must first teach the gospel and only those who believe the gospel may be baptized in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit so if it's the case that there must first be a preaching and teaching of the gospel, there must first be faith and then baptism, then how can you reform people say that your children are to be baptized when your children don't even understand the difference from their right hand and their left hand, much less do they understand the meaning of baptism and the significance of baptism as the washing away of their sins through the wonder of the cross of Christ. If your children cannot understand that, then how can you say that they ought to be baptized? Well, what is your answer? What is your defense of bringing your children, your babies, to be baptized? The answer is not merely that there are a few texts in the New Testament that show us that the apostles baptized Believers and their families. There are a number of texts like that in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, which indicate that the apostles baptized believers, such as Cornelius, such as Lydia, such as the Philippian jailer, but the apostles also baptized their household, their family, everyone who was a member of their house, so that it is an easy and logical conclusion to say that well then they must have also baptized children even though it doesn't specifically say there were children in those families a normal family would have children and if the apostles baptized those believers and their whole family then it's a very logical conclusion to say they must have also baptized their children but that's not the only answer to the question why ought our children to be baptized the answer to that question has to be found in the truth of the everlasting covenant of grace a truth which was revealed by God throughout the whole of the scriptures so that this truth of the everlasting covenant of grace runs like a golden thread through all of the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It begins in the Old Testament already, in the book of Genesis, which we read this morning, in which God reveals that he establishes his covenant with men. And that covenant which he establishes is a relationship. A relationship that he establishes with people so that he becomes their God and they become his people. It's a relationship in which he loves them and he walks with them. He watches over them. He cares for them. He provides for them. He protects them. He is their God. They are his people. He is their father and they are his children. And as a father loves his children and watches over them and provides for them and he walks with them and talks with them, and sweet fellowship in the home, so is the covenant of grace, a relationship of fellowship and friendship between God and his people. And in that relationship, God draws his people to himself, into his arms, so that we begin to love him. We begin to walk with him and talk with him and we put our trust in him. This is the covenant And God first began to establish his covenant with human beings at the very beginning of history. He first established his covenant because his covenant is the relationship of fellowship and friendship that is within his own being in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling together in a relationship of love. God first established that covenant with men in the beginning, at the dawn of history, On day six, when he created the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image. In that very instant when he created Adam and Eve, he created them in covenant with himself. He didn't establish that covenant with them later. He established that covenant with them at the very moment of their creation. So we might call it the covenant of creation with Adam and Eve. At the moment when Adam and Eve opened their eyes, they were in covenant with God. They knew him as their God, and they knew themselves as his people, and they walked and talked together in the midst of the Garden of Eden in sweet, intimate fellowship. They enjoyed perfect happiness and peace and rest in the Garden of Eden until man... Turned his back on God. Until Adam and Eve forsook the Lord their God. And formed a covenant with Satan. Listening to the voice of the serpent. And rejecting the word of God. They took hold of the forbidden fruit. And ate and sinned and broke the covenant. They broke that covenant of creation. That God made with them in the beginning. And they chose rather to enter into a covenant relation with Satan. And they plunged themselves into darkness and sin and death. And when Adam sinned, the whole human race became corrupted with that sin. Since he was the representative father of all humanity, when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to all of his children who were not even born yet. So that the whole human race became corrupted with the filthy stain and condemnation of original sin. And the baptism form teaches us that our children, our little children, come into this world without their knowledge as partakers of the condemnation in Adam. They are conceived and born in sin in Adam just like we were. But they have no knowledge of it. The gospel comes when, after the fall, God established his covenant of grace. When, after the fall, he came and searched out Adam and Eve in the garden. And he spoke to them the mother promise and said, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. By that promise, God was saying, I will establish a new covenant of grace through Christ, the seed of the woman. Christ will come, and he will bruise the serpent's head. And he will do that precisely by coming face to face with Satan and resisting his temptations, unlike Adam and Eve. He will resist the temptations of the devil. He will walk in perfect obedience to God his Father throughout his life and also in his suffering and death. He will offer to God the obedience of perfect love in life and in death. And therefore God was promising that in Christ there will be an obedience that can be imputed to us as our righteousness before God so that through Christ we will be drawn into the covenant of grace again. The covenant that was lost in Adam will be restored and exalted through Christ who was to come. And just as our children come into this world, partakers of the condemnation in Adam without their knowledge, so our children are again received into grace in Christ without their knowledge. And therefore they are to be baptized. But the objection that immediately comes is, how can you say that? How can you say that your children are again received unto grace in Christ? We agree with you that our children are conceived and born in sin. They're partakers of the condemnation in Adam. They're fallen. They need to be saved. But how can you say that your children are also Received again into the covenant of grace without their knowledge? And the answer to that question is found throughout the scriptures and the truth that God establishes this everlasting covenant of grace with believers and their children. God established his covenant with believing Noah and his family at the time of the flood. God established his covenant with Noah and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But not just with Noah. God never establishes his covenant individualistically. He doesn't ever just choose one here and another there and another there to put this random assortment of people together. But he established his covenant with Noah and his family his wife, his three sons, their wives. And he gathered them all into the ark so that when he poured out the flood on the whole earth, that flood baptized Noah and his family, Noah and his children in the ark. The flood was a baptism of the world to wash away the filth of the world. And those waters of baptism poured down upon the ark. And God Baptized Noah and his seed in the ark. He brought them out of that old, filthy, and corrupt world through baptism into the new and glorious world. And they stepped out of the ark into that world. And God said to Noah, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. But maybe the objection then comes, Well, yes, but the children of Noah were already adults by that time. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were already adults when God established his covenant with them there. So how can you use that as a basis for infant baptism? Well, you have to keep going further. You have to look at the whole sweep of Scripture. And you have to go from Noah to Abraham, as we read this morning, and see that God made even clearer in the days of Abraham that he establishes the covenant of grace with believers and their children as children as children God came to Abraham and appeared to him and said I am the almighty God walk before me and be perfect Abraham I love you Abraham you're my son I have chosen you I establish my covenant with you and I change your name from Abram to Abraham because you're not just a great father but you're going to be a a great father of nations. And I'm going to establish my covenant through you with all the nations of the world, with believers in all nations of the world. And then this. And I establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be a God unto you, Abraham, and to your seed after you, In their generations by that promise God was revealing his plan of salvation that he would establish his covenant of grace with believers and their children believers and their families and that he would continue that from generation to generation to generation he would establish his covenant with the children of believers Not when they grow up and become old enough to understand the meaning of circumcision. But when they are already eight days old. When they are only eight days old as little infant children who cannot discern their right hand from their left. That's what God was promising to be a God unto Abraham and to his children. Abraham was 99 years old. Isaac was not even born yet. Maybe you can say about Noah that God established his covenant with him when his children were already grown up. But you can't say that about Abraham and Isaac. God established his covenant and made his promise to Abraham before Isaac was even born. And said, I will be a God unto you and to the children I'm going to bring forth from you and Sarah. When God said he would be a God unto Abraham and his seed, that word seed is very important because it refers not only to his children, but ultimately to his greatest child, who would be Christ. God's covenant is with Christ and with all who belong to Christ, and he gathers them from the lines of the generations of believers. And so we ought not to be surprised then when Christ came into the world. And these mothers and fathers were pressing around him as he was teaching. And they were bringing their little children, holding their little toddlers by the hands, and trying to get close to Jesus. And these mothers were carrying their babies, trying to get close to Jesus, because they wanted him to touch their babies and their toddlers and their school-aged children and their teenage children. And bless them. But the disciples said, No, 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 no. The Lord has no time for these children. He's very busy. He's teaching. And the Lord said to his disciples, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. And if someone tries to argue that those little children must have been old enough to know who Jesus was... And to run into his arms, that's simply not true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that story. And if you look at Luke 18, verse 15, there it specifically says that some of them were bringing infants to Jesus. There may have been older children. There may have been toddlers who were able to walk and talk a little bit. But there were also infants. Mothers carrying their babies to Jesus so that he would bless them. And Jesus said, bring them to me. Because the kingdom of God is made up of such. And after Jesus died and rose and went into heaven, poured out his spirit, Peter stood up on Pentecost, which we read in Acts 2. And after preaching the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, and rebuking them for their sin of crucifying the Messiah. And they cried out, Men, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the promise is unto you, believers, not to all of you, but to you who believe and repent. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's what he said. And by that, God inspired Peter to reveal that his plan in the new covenant is the same as in the old covenant, that he will establish his covenant with believers and their seed in their generations. The difference in the new covenant, as we will see, is that now it broadens out from Israel into all the nations, Nevertheless, God still establishes his covenant in the lines of continuing generations. That doesn't mean that God establishes his covenant with every single child of believers. It doesn't mean that every single one of our children, simply because they are our children and they get baptized, that means they're in the covenant. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, There are sometimes children of believers like an Esau who though they are born to believers and they receive the sign of the covenant, they're not really in the covenant and they show themselves eventually to be ungodly and unbelievers. Nevertheless, God's plan and his promise is to establish his covenant with us and our children already when they are children, little babes, And that's the basis for the doctrine, the practice of infant baptism. If they are in the covenant, then they must receive the sign of the covenant. That's always been the logic, the biblical logic of the Reformed Church. Because the children of believers are in the covenant of grace... God wills that they be given the sign of the covenant, the rich sacrament. God revealed this, first of all, in the Old Testament to Abraham. In his covenant with Noah, he didn't yet give the sign of circumcision. He gave the sign of the rainbow. He put the rainbow in the sky as a token of the covenant. And that revealed that his covenant is not to be viewed so narrowly as it's just us and our children. The covenant is a universal and broad and beautiful universe-encompassing reality. God's covenant is with all creation, with all living things. And the rainbow is a token of the covenant in that sense. But to Noah, uh, to Abraham, he gave the sign of circumcision. In Genesis 17, when he expressed that covenant promise to Abraham when he was 99 years old, he commanded Abraham to take the token of the covenant in his own flesh, the sign of circumcision, which, as you know, involved the cutting away and the casting away of the flesh of the foreskin as a sign and seal Of the cutting and casting away of their sins through the shedding of blood, the painful shedding of blood, which pointed forward to the much more painful shedding of blood of the coming Christ who would lay down his life on the cross for our sins. Circumcision was a sign and seal of that marvelous reality, the painful cutting. Removing of our sins through the blood of Christ, which he would shed on the cross. And so Abraham, 99-year-old believer, took to himself that sign of circumcision. And he was built up in his faith as it pointed him to the cross of Christ. But Abraham would then bring forth children... He would bring forth a son with Sarah, his wife, in their old age, a wonder child, Isaac, and they would bring forth that child. Abraham would conceive and beget that child, mind you, with the very organ of his body, which bore the token of the covenant. The very organ of his body, of his flesh, which had received the cutting away the shedding of blood that symbolized and sealed the removal of his sins through the blood of Christ. With that, he would conceive and bring forth a son. The uncircumcised children were not to be considered to be in the covenant. The children who were born of uncircumcised fathers were not to be considered in the covenant. The Philistines who were uncircumcised. The Ammonites who were uncircumcised. The Egyptians. Uncircumcised fathers who brought forth uncircumcised children were not in the covenant. They did not possess the sign and seal of the removal of their sins by the blood of Christ. But when a circumcised father conceived with his wife a child with the very organ that was circumcised, it was a sign and seal that that child too will receive the cutting and removal of his dreadful sins through Christ Jesus, who was to come. But then, the man-children, the male babies that were born, such as Isaac, they were also to be circumcised when they were only eight days old. That little baby who had no conception of what was happening to him, who was not able to discern what was happening to him, who had no idea of the physical act, much less the spiritual significance, was to receive the sign of the covenant. And that sign was to be that this little one is already in the covenant. How? Through the cutting away and casting away of his sins through Christ who is to come. And then, since that little baby boy would grow up as a circumcised person and eventually become a father himself, that circumcision was also a sign that God would continue his covenant with his children and then with his children and his children after him, generation after generation. the Sign of circumcision pointed to that truth that God establishes his covenant with believers and their children in their generations. What has changed in the New Testament? Some things have changed and some things have not changed. In the Reformed Church and in Reformed theology, we teach and believe the unity of the two testaments. We don't agree with dispensationalism, to which many Baptists hold, which cuts up the history of Scripture into all of these unique, different dispensations and destroys the unity of salvation history. The Reformed have always taught the unity of the two testaments, the unity of the two covenants. There is continuity. There is one church, Old Testament and New Testament. But there are differences between the two Testaments. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he instituted baptism, was also giving the Great Commission to his his apostles, excuse me. He was commanding them to go out into the world and preach the gospel into all nations and to baptize those who believe in Jesus Christ. No longer is circumcision to be administered. Circumcision is finished in the New Testament. Not that it can't be done as a medical procedure, but it is finished as a sign of the covenant. It is no longer, it no longer has any spiritual significance to be circumcised, and the New Testament emphasizes that. The Apostle Paul teaches that in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. That makes no difference, because circumcision is no more. And it is no more because Jesus Christ, who was himself circumcised on the eighth day, fulfilled circumcision through his death on the cross. Circumcision was the cutting and casting away of sin by painful, bloody activity. Christ, through his painful, bloody sacrifice on the cross, cut away the sins of all his people once and for all and cast them away forever. And that's how he fulfilled circumcision. In like manner, he fulfilled the Old Testament Passover feast in which there was also shedding of blood. There was the slitting of the throat of the lamb. And he, as the lamb of God, was slain on the cross. His blood was shed, so that Passover is replaced with the Lord's Supper. Circumcision is replaced with baptism. No more blood needs to be shed, because he shed his blood once and for all on the cross. Therefore, now... Baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Not blood, but water, which is applied to the individual as a sign and seal of the washing away of all their sins by the blood and spirit of Christ. And notice then the continuity to circumcision and baptism pointed to the same thing. Circumcision points to the cutting away and removal of our sins. Baptism points to the washing away of all our sins. Same thing. So Jesus instituted baptism at the Great Commission. But the Baptists challenge us right at this point and say, but he only commanded us to baptize believers not their children. Why did Jesus not mention children in the Great Commission and the institution of baptism? Matthew 28 and Mark 16. Because this was the turning point of the two covenants. This was the point where God was opening up the covenant to the nations so that they would flow into the church. And the emphasis therefore was placed on the commission to preach in the nations. And therefore, necessarily, the emphasis was placed on adults. It was placed on those who are old enough to hear, to understand, and to believe the gospel. And since they are in the heathen world of darkness, it's not the children that we would preach to first, but the adults. Nevertheless, just as in the Old Testament, so in the New God's plan was to establish his covenant with those adult believers and their children. That, by the way, is one of the differences between Arminian missions and Reformed missions. Arminian missions tries to go out and get as many individuals as possible to make a decision for Christ. Reformed missions preaches the gospel to all, in the hope that adult heathens will become believers and that their children and their family will then also be brought into the church. Reformed missions aims at the whole family and the continuation of the covenant then with their generations after them. That's a very important point in the whole matter of missions. But the Apostle Peter makes it exceedingly plain at the very dawn of the New Testament, the very dawn of the Great Commission, when he's preaching the gospel to Jews and proselytes from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem, and he says to them, The promise is unto you, you who believe, and to your children. And therefore, if the promise is for them, then so is the sign. If the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit of the covenant, is not only for those adults, but also for their children, then the sign of that covenant is also for them, and they must be baptized. And when you understand all of that, and when you keep all of that before your eyes and your mind, and then you look at the New Testament again, and you see the apostles baptizing Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer and others, And their house. Then you're much less inclined to argue, yeah, but you can't prove that there are children in that house. That's true. But you're much more inclined to say, a normal house has children. And he baptized the head of the house and everyone in the house. And therefore... The scriptures are teaching us to baptize also our children. Now, I want to add this point of clarification. The reason, then, that we baptize our children is not the same as why the Roman Catholics baptized their children. When I was in the Philippines, it's a Roman Catholic country, and most of the Christian missionaries who came into the country in the last century were not reformed. They're Pentecostals, they're Baptists, and so on. So they were not teaching what I've just taught this morning. They were only baptizing adults. So many of the Protestant Christians in the Philippines, when they would hear of us baptizing our children, they would take offense at that because they associate that with Roman Catholicism. We have to make a clear distinction between why Rome baptizes infants and why we do. Why, does, why do some in our community take their children up to the priest to baptize their little ones? I heard a member of that Catholic church explain it to me in her own words. The Catholic belief is that our children have original sin and the holy water of the priest can wash that sin away. That's their belief. The catechism here in the same Lord's Day, says, no. The water of baptism does not wash away sin. Only the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ have the power to wash away sin. But we baptize as a sign and seal, as a a teaching and assuring sacrament to believers and their seed, that just as you see that water applied to the head of your little one or to your own head, if you did get baptized as an adult, just as you see that water, God is teaching you. He has washed away all your sins and the sins of your children. And he assures you and pledges to you that promise. That is meant to uplift us to comfort us, to build up our faith. My sins are really washed away. And as for our little children, we baptize them, the catechism says, because thereby we admit them to the Christian church and distinguish them from the children of unbelievers. I said in the introduction to, there are many people all around us who don't bother to bring their children for baptism. They bring children into the world, they don't baptize them. I'm not talking about the Baptists now, who have religious theological reasons for that. I'm talking about the many unbelievers. So that there are children running around who aren't baptized because their parents are unbelievers. Why do we baptize our children? Catechism says, because by that we distinguish them from the children of unbelievers. These are children of the church. These are are children of believers, children of God. Finally, the practical implications. Practical implications are deep and broad and wide when it comes to parenting and raising our children. You might think that if it was just a matter of this doctrine or that doctrine, that it wouldn't have a whole lot of impact on our actual life in the home. But it does. It has a big impact. There are many Christians who do not consider their children to be Christians. Who do not consider their children to be believers. They don't consider their children to be in the kingdom of God. They don't consider them to be born again. And therefore, they consider their children to be still lost in darkness and condemned in Adam. And so they raise their children accordingly. Some have even gone so far as to say that children, even the children of believers, are to be considered as little vipers. They're little snakes because they are still the children of the serpent. They're still the children of Satan. So we ought to consider them and view them as unregenerated and therefore if that's the case then the task of parenting is to try to lead our children into the kingdom because we still consider them outsiders we consider our children to be like our own personal mission field and our task as parents is to urge them and lead them and bring them into the kingdom because they're not in yet And so, some parents might take the approach of trying to frighten their children into the kingdom. They might remind them constantly that don't forget, God is a consuming fire. Scripture says that. And God will destroy sinners who are outside of Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ and constantly bring that message to their children. You need to flee, flee into the kingdom. You need to Make a decision. You need to accept Jesus and be born again. Or other parents might take a softer approach and try to allure their children into the kingdom. They might try to lay it on heavy, the glories of heaven and the kingdom and salvation, but then emphasize to their children that they need to be born again before they can have the hope of inheriting those riches. They have to be born again. You have to accept Jesus. You have to let him into your life. You have to open the door of your heart. That comes first. And then, and only then, can you be baptized. And then, and only then, can I consider you a child of God together with your mother and I. And so that's the kind of environment that many children are raised in who are not considered children of the covenant and who are not baptized Some children are even raised in that kind of an environment when they are baptized because there are some reformed people who out of force of habit and custom still bring their children for baptism as infants, yet they take more of a baptistic view of their children when they actually raise them. They don't consider them really to be regenerated yet. That's a mistake. Now, now, To be fair, it is also a mistake, and probably we might fall into that mistake more so, that as parents, we would assume that all of our children are elect. They are all regenerated. They are all safe and secure for time and eternity, and so focus on that way of thinking that we don't think we have any need of warning our children against apostasy, warning our children that the Bible really does say God is a consuming fire, but he's a consuming fire toward those who are raised in the faith, who learn Christ and then reject him. He's a consuming fire to them. And it's a mistake if we parents Never bring that warning as well. It's a mistake if we as parents do not urge our children to go to Christ and trust in him alone for our salvation. The practical implication, though, of the truth of God's covenant of grace with us and our children and infant baptism is that we do view our children as sinners saved by grace through Christ just like ourselves. We understand and we confess when we bring our children for baptism. I acknowledge that this, my little one, was conceived and born in sin and is a partaker of the condemnation in Adam, just like myself, and is worthy of damnation because of that. But I also believe that my child has been sanctified in Christ, washed in Christ, and regenerated. And so I bring him or her for baptism to receive the sign and the seal. That does not mean that we assume they are all elect. But it means that because of the promise of God to establish his covenant with us and our children in our generations, because of the promise, not an assumption, but a promise, the promise of God, on that basis, we bring them for baptism and we raise them up as children of God. We teach them as soon as they know words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can say that, my little child. You can say that about yourself. You can pray, our Father which art in heaven, and I'll pray that with you because he's not just my father. As an adult believer, he's your father too. And Jesus is just not, not just my Savior, but also your Savior. Well, what about when our children commit dreadful sins? Dreadful. Ought we not then to wonder whether they are regenerated? No. We raise them up as the children of God, even when they commit dreadful sins, remembering that like ourselves, they still have an old man of sin cleaving to them. And like ourselves, they too will fall into sin What we do when they fall into dreadful sins is not wonder and doubt whether they are children of God, but we admonish them. We rebuke them. We tell them to repent of their sin because you're sinning against your Father. That's why. Not because you better watch out. The flames of hell are looking at your feet. You better flee from the wrath of God. But we say, My son, my daughter, you sinned against God, your father. Your father, you sinned against grace. That's not right. You need to repent of that. You need to be sorry for that. And we use the rod of reproof to chasten them when they're little. And when they get older, we might ground them or use other kinds of chastenings. But always we consider them the children of God until or unless they grow up and come to years of discretion and reject Christ and walk away from him then we may start to doubt then we lose our reason for hope that doesn't mean we stop praying for them we do pray for them and we continue to talk to them and call them to repentance and urge them but we view them as the children of God when they're growing up in our home we raise them that way And when they do apologize and say they're sorry, then we model to them the forgiveness that God has shown to us. I forgive you. God forgives you. Now, let's do better. Let's live a grateful life for all the mercies of God to us in Jesus. That's how we raise our children, when we consider them the children of God. We raise them to walk in joyful, thankful obedience because we consider them saved by grace in Christ like ourselves. Therefore, they need to learn to live a thankful life as the children of God. What a blessing and what an honor it is then to raise the children of the covenant, to raise them in the fear and the nurture of the Lord, to point them to Christ and to teach them to live a thankful life may god grant us the strength to do it amen our gracious heavenly father we thank thee for thy covenant promises and that rich sacrament of grace to us and our children and though we know father it may not be thy good pleasure to save all of our children nevertheless We give thanks and praise to thee for that promise to save our children. And we pray that we would raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That we would be faithful as parents to point them to sin and grace, to point them to Christ as their Lord. And grant, Father, that these children might grow up and come to love thee and